0: Beloved, let's stand, let's read God's word together. I'll begin by reading to you as we have other narratives Esther 1, 1 through 22. Esther 1, 1 through 22. Hear the word of God. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over. 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches Of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains. And violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was according to this edict; there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha and Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples at the princes and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karchenah, Shethar, Admatha, Karshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the king's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. it pleased the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Queen Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according the language of his people. So ends the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's
1: pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to this text this morning and we ask to see you as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The earth is yours and the fullness of it.
0: The world is yours, and each one who dwells in it is yours. You founded it on the waters, you've established it upon the rivers. And who can approach you, King of kings and Lord of lords? Who can ascend your hill?
1: Who has a heart pure enough? Hands clean enough? Father, we we bow before you this morning as we sang, all on earth must receive your scepter. who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We invite You, Father, through
0: Your Word and by Your Spirit to come in and allow us to worship You today and to confess together who You are as the Lord of all. You are the King of glory. You are the Lord of hosts. You are the King of glory over all. May we see You as such today, we pray. And may we be changed. May we be strengthened. May we rejoice knowing that we are in You.
1: And You and us, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we introduced ourselves
0: to the book of Esther by four questions. Four questions. We asked, why are we studying Esther? We asked, how do we rightly interpret Esther? What is the point of Esther? And how should we apply Esther to our lives? And I just want to encourage you, if you were not able to participate and hear that message, please go to the website or our Facebook page and listen to that so that you can come to it with perspective as we're preparing to study this book together. Last Sunday we stated the main idea of Esther in this way, and I'll let you read it here with me. See the glory of God as He providentially works redemptive reversal at the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. All of Esther is a redemptive reversal. The first part of Esther, it looks as if the people of God are going to be eliminated. And at the last moment, God providentially, amazingly, gloriously turns everything around for His people's good and His glory. That is our God. The book of Esther literarily, in its literary form, shows that sort of reversal. At the very lowest point, God turns things around. In the first half of the book of Esther, there is a, can we call it a layering of dangerous, threatening elements which add up to that dire moment in the life of the Jews, God's chosen people. And all of that layering sets the stage for the glory of God and his providence to be displayed as the covenant-keeping God who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness acts for the good of His chosen people. Have you ever experienced a trial in your life where you, you're feeling just sort of wave after wave of greater problems and troubles piling up? That's the way the first part of the book of Esther is. There's this one danger, and then another, and then another, and problems unfold. This story of God's providence and steadfast love does not turn out in the end the way that it would seem in the beginning. And how often is God's providential working just like that?
1: This did not turn out the way I thought it would. God is a master over all things and He
0: providentially works all things for our good and His glory. And so realizing that this is the way our God works, we are called to learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. And so in this particular chapter, chapter 1, the first element that is a danger, a threat to the people of God, and in a human sense, a threat to God's promises toward them, is a ruler. A dominant, depraved, dangerous ruler. How often
1: throughout history have one of those been a threat to the people of God? Let's look at this together. Number
0: one, in your outline, a dominant ruler, verses one through nine. Verses one through nine describe the glory and the reign of this dominant ruler, this king. What's his name? Ahasuerus. Who is Ahasuerus? Let's kind of place him in history a little bit. You might know him by his Greek name, Xerxes. Same person, same king. Xerxes the Great. X-E-R-X-E-S. And he reigned over the Persian Empire from 486 to to 465 B.C. 486 to 465 B.C. He was the son and successor of Darius I. Which Darius? Well, the Darius that was the successor of Cyrus the Great. Now, he's the one we hear of the most. We read of him, particularly in the book of Isaiah, and God calls him the man of his right hand, right? The one whom he's anointed to bring about different plans in the lives of the Jews. Darius, Cyrus's son, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus' father, Darius the I was the king who provided for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. That's recorded, for example, in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 15. He was one of the kings that sent materials back, funded the rebuilding of the temple. And that indicates that the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of Darius' reign, Ezra 6.15. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was the king who received complaints and accusations about the Jews during the temple rebuilding project. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Remember that, how the surrounding nations were constantly trying to shut down the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the laws, and Ahasuerus was the one that received all those accusations and complaints. These verse 9 verses make it clear that Ahasuerus was a very, Powerful king. His power is demonstrated impressively in these verses in two particular ways. The first way is the expanse of his domain. You can see that in your outline, letter A, the expanse of his domain. And secondly, the wealth of his domain. These verse 9 verses take effort to display all of that before our eyes. For example,
1: to show you, I think I have a map here. Here's the Persian Empire. And at one point,
0: Ahasuerus was ruling over all of it. You look at verse 1 of Esther 1, it says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Well, you can see that here. The east extent of his reign is over here and the west extent of his reign is over here. And that is relatable to modern day Pakistan and northern Sudan if you wanted some modern day countries to go along with that. Asuarius was known for unifying, bringing together, strengthening the Persian Empire. His kingdom was comprised of you see here 127 provinces actually 20 regions were was what is known in that day and those 20 regions were broken down into further smaller units 127 promise, provinces which of course were governed by many officials the extent of his reign is massive the text tells us that so very clearly and esther chapter 1 opens us to an event that the king Ahasuerus was engaged in. What is the important event? A feast. He's demonstrating his power by a public display of all of his wealth. And he's doing it in a big way. So notice the wealth of his domain in chapters, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. It says that uh, this happened, notice, during the third year. Of his reign so that would have been year 483 bc and history tells us it doesn't say this in the text but very interesting history tells us that during that year the third reign third third year of ahasuerus reign he was he held a great war council in preparation to invade greece alexander the great was coming up in those days and of course ahasuerus did not want to give any of his kingdom Greece. And so, in order to gain all the military and political support necessary from the various regions of his empire to ingra- invade Greece successfully, he held a great feast. Now, what would that do? Well, the great feast was an effort to impress all of the officials that he had invited to this feast. Like it says here in verse 2, he gave a great feast for all of his officials and his servants. He was wanting to impress all these men in order to totally gain their absolute allegiance, full support, loyalty, and give their efforts with him into this military battle, into this military pursuit against Greece. Of course, earthly wealth means earthly power, doesn't it? In a human sense. And so you, the, all, these, all these officials and governors would be very impressed. There wasn't a wealthier person on the face of the earth at this point than than Ahasuerus. He's sitting there in his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. This This was the winter capital of Persia. Too hot in the summer to sit on his throne in Susa. But in the winter, he could enjoy that place there. And he gives one feast. You notice there's actually two feasts listed in this chapter. The first feast... He shows all of His riches and His royal glory and His splendor and His pomp. I mean, how many different ways can we say this? He gathers the armies of Persia and media together and they're all before Him. All these words are just so full of Ahasuerus. All of these people come and they're sitting before Him. They're in His presence, attending to Him, honoring Him. And what does, he do to, for, for, what does He do during this feast? He shows them his riches now how many days long was this feast sometimes as you read some of these some of these chapters in esther it's almost comical like you need a 6th month long feast to show off all your stuff all right ahasuerus we got it you're a, you're a big guy it's amazing that's what he's doing it's over the top his glory his splendor his pomp his greatness 180 days of feasting. Now if that weren't enough, when he was done with that feast, there were seven days of feasting more for the people that were right immediately in his service right in Susa, those people present in Susa. Maybe these were the people who helped him pull off the feast for everyone else over the six-month period. Notice where this feast is. It's in the court of the garden. It must be a really big garden court for everyone, all the people, great and small, in the, in the area of Susa to
1: come and have this feast there. Now notice also that Queen Vashti gave a feast of her own. And again
0: it says that all of this was done, not just in any palace, but whose palace? Everything points back to King Ahasuerus. He is the wealthy man here. It goes to great extent here also in the text to show his wealth by all of the, the trappings of the feast. White cotton curtains, violet hangings, cords of linen and purple, of silver rods, marble pillars. This is elaborate and a, and a great statement of all of his wealth. Interestingly here also is the drinking. Drinking was something known to Persian kings. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the drinks were served in golden vessels and not just something stamped out one after another, but vessels of different kinds. He is doing all he can to impress everyone who comes. And I I, I think that usually the drinking was done according to whatever the king would do. When the, if the king was doing it, you could do it. If the king didn't do it, you shouldn't do it either. But in this case, there was an edict. Could you imagine having an edict about how you should drink? And in this, in this edict, there was a decree that said there's no compulsion. You can drink as little or as much as you desire. All of this, all of this was a demonstration of Ahasuerus' power. It's a public relations maneuver. Nothing new, is there? (laughs) Public relations maneuver in order to gain absolute admiration, loyalty, submission from all of his nobles, governors, servants, people, in order to establish and accomplish his will, in this case, for a war effort. So the first nine verses are intended to underscore that fact. Ahasuerus wields a great deal of power. And consequently, a man like this is a threat to God's chosen people. But as the rest of the chapter unfolds, what we will see is that he doesn't really have the dominance that he presents himself to have, does he? In fact, he doesn't have control over himself, for one, and he doesn't have control over his wife, for two. And he does not have personal integrity to wield well the power that has been bestowed upon him. So, not only, number one, do we have a dominant ruler, very impressive in his day, but secondly, we have a depraved ruler.
1: This is verses 10 through 12. His depravity is observed in two particular ways. First, he's intoxicated, for one, and second, he's immoral verse
0: 10 on the seventh day so here we are at the last day of the second feast so he's on 187 days of feasting here and the heart of the king was merry with wine persian kings were known for their drunkenness in fact very interesting the Greek historian Herodotus writes that when Persian kings had to make an important decision, they got drunk. They'd bring all their councils together and they would get thoroughly drunk because they thought that by being drunk, they would have better access to the will of the gods that somehow the gods would communicate to them through that state of drunkenness, which you can understand how that could be. But... When they became sober, if they found the decision that they had made in their state of drunkenness was acceptable, they went with it. If they found that their state of drunkenness yielded a condition or a decision that wasn't so good, they'd scrap it and start over. a very interesting way of making decisions. But this is historically known from the Greek historian Herodotus. Well, Ahasuerus on day 187 is indeed drunk. Apparently, his judgment is quite impaired considering what happens so quickly following this this situation. Now, overindulgence in wine does not make a wise king, does it? Reminded of the words of Lemuel's mother to him in Proverbs 31. Remember that? He said, she said, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to make strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. That is Ahasuerus to the T. He has to ask all these other men in his drunken state, what are the laws? What should we do about Vashti since she has not obeyed my decree? And he certainly was not seeking the right of the the afflicted. He was perverting the rights of the afflicted. Notice the progression of foolishness in King Ahasuerus' behavior, beginning with drunkenness. We see this in verse 10 through 12. At the very end, his anger is burning. And eventually, what he does he do? He banishes Vashti from his sight. In how many moments' time did he consider this decision of never seeing his wife again? That's interesting. Drunk, angry, foolish. You also see this, if you just jump over a little bit, and I I want to let let the story unfold. I don't want to dip too much in the future for this story. But chapter 5 and verse 6 says the same thing. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So we have Ahasuerus drunk again and making promises that he probably won't fulfill to Esther in that case. Yeah, have, take whatever you want. Just tell me and I'll give it to you.
1: Look also again in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 2. And on the second
0: day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Verse 7 and 8. Again, he's drunk, right? And verse 7, And the king rose in his wrath from, his, from the wine drinking. Right? That's not an accidental phrase there. He rose in his wrath from his wine drinking. This guy is an alcoholic and he's angry soon after drinking when something doesn't go his way. Verse eight, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the king in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So you see this sort of pattern. Now as you consider Ahasuerus drinking, making this promise to Esther, ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you, and anger following and foolishness. Does that remind you of any stories in the New Testament, particularly in light of the request that he's about to make of Vashti? Well, as I'm thinking about this drink, this drunk king who then who then makes a very immoral command, Vashti, come and parade your sensuality before my guests. I'm thinking of Matthew 14:1 through 12, where Herod, maybe drunk, it doesn't say there, made a statement an offer to his wife's daughter when he shouldn't have had that wife it was the wife of his brother his daughter asks for the head of john the baptist and in a moment makes a very foolish decision so as in herod's court so in ahasuerus's court there's intoxication there's immorality what we see here is that ahasuerus sent seven of his eunuchs To bring Queen Vashti in order to show to the peoples her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Vashti was commanded to come. These men, these seven, why did we need seven men to go get her? Well, these seven eunuchs probably carried her in on some sort of palanquin or litter with a throne on it. The intent of this command was to display her sensual beauty before all the, particularly the male guests, and this is an extremely immoral production certainly degrading for vashti to say the least and what's more degrading for the queen is that this probably again is an immoral display and another tactic to gain the admiration and loyalty of his officials now put that kind of man together this powerful man with number two this depraved foolish man and what do you have powerful man wicked man makes a very dangerous ruler number three a dangerous ruler verses 12 all the way through to 22 being intoxicated ahasuerus is a dangerous ruler because first of all he's given to anger you see that in this text and others to come why is he angry he didn't get his way this is like an adult temper tantrum he doesn't get his way so he's angry now, in this condition, being drunk and angry, he's also easily manipulated by his advisors. He doesn't remember what laws are applied to this particular situation. And so you see in verse 13 through 20, all these advisors coming around him, those who see his face, and they use flattering language like, oh, this is going to be destructive to your kingdom, for it, and it is a great kingdom, by the way. And they're just weaving little words in here and there and they're flattering, and they're advising. And this is part of what we will see happen in the story as well, is the king has advisors around him who are manipulative. They understand the power of the king. They understand the weakness of the king. And they certainly manipulate him. And notice also that someone who is extremely conceited and selfish makes for a person who is easily manipulated. Because you can't see past yourself and your own desires. And when those around you come to give you what you want in some way, you're taken in by them. I also see here in verses 17 through 18 that he's a he's paranoid of losing control. He doesn't want to lose the control over his kingdom. He's listening to the advice of Memekin who says, Boy, if we if we let this go undealt with, word is gonna spread like crazy. And all the wives of the kingdom are going to just ignore their husbands and so on. And so there's a paranoia here. Probably knowing that he doesn't have the hearts of all of his kingdom, not the least of which is his wife, because of his selfish demands, he's afraid of losing control. And so he intends to force and demand obeisance by a decree and by a threat. He commands, he decrees by law the. The absolute compliance of those in his kingdom, and then he's rash and hasty and foolish in decision making when he should be sober, patient, and wise. He banishes the queen in a moment (verse in verse 21). That's insanity. And then he's forceful. He's forceful in decree when he should seek to be honorable and winsome (verse 22). It it's, just sounds so ridiculous. He sent letters to all the royal provinces and every province in his own script and to every people in his own language that every man be master of his own house and speaking according to the language of his people all right if you don't if you don't do what we want you we're just going to banish you right this is this is this is idiocy in ruler in 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 the life of a ruler and the immediate result of ahasuerus dominance and depravity and dangerousness is that his own wife the queen of persia is banished from his presence forever Think about it. Ahasuerus made this permanent, devastating, insane decision after a few drinks and a few words and in a few moments. When you put all that together, you can kind of consider what, th- th- what this kind of ruler could potentially do to the people over whom he rules. Especially to those who worship a different God than he does. What kind of, a guy like, what kind, what kind of things could a guy like this do? A wicked, powerful, dangerous ruler who's angry, manipulated, paranoid, hasty and forceful. As one observes Ahasuerus in chapter one, and that's the point of Ohasuerus, chapter one is to see him as he is. One might think that this king indeed poses a threat to God's people, God's promises to them, and his purposes through them. Is this guy going to spoil? All of, his redempt- all of god's redemptive promises but again here's where we come to look at things through the lens of scripture through the lens of god's providence through the lens of god's power as we will so let's come to uh some time of application here there's the explanation of the chapter and we just observe some many things that we we can uh, see here in the chapter What does the Holy Spirit intend for us to learn from this chapter? We've seen a a dominant ruler, a depraved ruler, a dangerous ruler, great threat to the Jews. What are we supposed to learn from that? I want to suggest three things, and you have those in your notes as well. Number one, God appoints rulers like these to discipline His children when they are unfaithful to Him. Turn with me
1: to First Kings. Chapter Nine. First Kings, Chapter Nine. 1 Kings chapter 9, this is prayer between God and
0: Solomon who had finished the building of the house of the Lord, the first temple, the great temple, right? The one that all the Jews looked to. Is that, that was the pinnacle of life in Judea. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that, Solomon desired to build. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, you will... Walk before Me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping My statutes and My rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised, your, promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following Me, you or your children, and you do not keep My commandments and My statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for My name I will cast out of My sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and lay hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on
1: them. Why does God? bring in wicked powerful rulers
0: to decimate the land and the temple of his people because they abandon him to worship other gods you see it plainly in the text i mean this this is right at the pinnacle of life in israel the kingdom of israel was the largest it would ever be under the reign of solomon And the temple was the greatest temple that they had built. And God's presence was there. And they turned from Him. And God gave them over to a wicked king to chasten them so that their hearts would be turned back to Him. That's why. One reason why. God appoints rulers like these to discipline His children when they are unfaithful to Him. And certainly... A text like this is in part a call to repentance and renewed trust and love and obedience toward God as our Savior and Lord, the person of Jesus Christ. Will then God ultimately revoke His promises? For example, in verse 5, "Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel for how long? Forever. As I promised David your Your father saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So, even in the sin of God's people and his discipline by bringing a wicked, powerful, dangerous king in to destroy them, will God's promises be nullified? No, they still will not. Number two, will God still fulfill his promises to his children in spite of these wicked rulers and even accomplish his purposes through them? That principle, that truth is also budding here in Esther chapter 1. God was already working toward the preservation of his people so that the offspring of the woman, the eternal king, would come
1: to his people. How is he doing that already here in chapter 1? Even. He even
0: did it right here through Ahasuerus' power, even his wickedness and his dangerousness. Do you see how it begins to happen here? You've got a powerful man who's displaying his wealth at an overwhelmingly over-the-top feast. Drunkenness. Immorality as he invites Vashti to come. There's the refusal on her part to come. Vashti was banished. Why? Why did all of those little events unfold? So that Esther would become queen. Why? Well, that's where the story unfolds, where God begins to use her at this very moment to preserve his people so that ultimately Christ, will be born of the world, who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever. You see how it all unfolds? That's here in chapter 1, just beginning. So you look at those events and say, well, this guy's a nut. He's big. He's powerful. He's depraved. He's dangerous.
1: But that's how Esther gets in.
0: Oh, God, you are king over all, aren't you? Yes, that's the point of Esther 1. Number three, though these earthly kings are indeed threatening, only one is King of kings and Lord of lords and truly does all that He pleases. Now the thing we're going to wrestle with is we see there's a lot of wickedness that goes on in this story of Esther. And we look at it and say, well, that's exactly what God used. God used that depravity to accomplish His purposes. Is God allowed to do that? yes see he doesn't cause the sin of ahasuerus and he doesn't even tempt ahasuerus sin we know that james 1 says god cannot be tempted with evil neither does he tempt any man but can god use the sinfulness of man he can and he can do so sinlessly and that's what he's going to do all through esther did god use the sinfulness of man at the cross he did When you look at the cross from a human perspective, you see the worst case of injustice ever. It was sinful that Christ was nailed to the cross. But what did God do through that? He redeemed His people from their sins. That's the providence of God. That's the sovereignty of God overall. There have been many dangerous rulers like Ahasuerus over the centuries, and there will be more to come. But remember, number three, though these earthly kings are indeed threatening, only one is king of kings and lord of lords and truly does all that he pleases. Just remember some of the greatest kings and empires down through the Old Testament history. We've looked at this a little bit last week already. Egypt, the first great empire. Pharaoh, a horrible, wicked, depraved God blaspheming King and what does God say about him Exodus nine sixteen. he says for this purpose I have raised you up Pharaoh to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth was Pharaoh and all of his power and evil a threat to God in reality absolutely not and not to God's people in fact God used the kings of Egypt to fulfill his promises of making them into a great nation as they were cared for under the wing of Egypt. How about Assyria? The next great empire comes in. And that, that well-known king, Sennacherib, how well did he do? Isaiah 36 and 37 tells the story how his armies, 185,000 soldiers, come and surround Jerusalem. And, and that messenger of his was breathing all kinds of blasphemy against God even saying to Israel, you're, you're trusting in nothing. You cannot stop the power of Sennacherib. But what happened? 185,000 soldiers struck down in one night by the angel of the Lord. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the, maybe one of the greatest foreign kings ever. How did he fare before the power, providence, and sovereignty of God? Humiliation. Didn't. He was humbled by God, wasn't he, right after he changed from a donkey, as it were, a, a hairy beast back into a man, he says right after that daniel four thirty four through thirty seven at the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned, and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And I still, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. How about that for a guy who, who put three of God's people into the fiery furnace and saw them walk back out, who was turned into a beast and then worships God. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. How about Medes? The Medes, the Median Empire. Cyrus the Great. Isaiah 44.28 says, Who says of Cyrus? God says of Cyrus. He's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah forty five one. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before Him, to loose the belts of kings, and to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. What is Cyrus the Great but an instrument in the hand of God? The Persians, well, here you have Ahasuerus, and we'll see how he functions in the hand of God. You think of Rome, the last great empire. Herod the Great. Christ escaped His genocide. Herod Antipas, who crucified Christ and was raised from the dead. Jesus raised from the dead, conquered all of the Roman uh, efforts at that time. Herod Agrippa (laughs) was eaten by worms after proclaiming himself to be like God. All these rulers find their place under the ultimate sovereign, whether they realize it or not. Can we lift our hearts and our eyes to this perspective? We've just covered thousands of years of history, and we've seen how God is. Has used each one and caused them to come and go according to his will. They are merely human instruments accomplishing the will of God. Not that God is causing or tempting them to sin, but that God is using them sinlessly to fulfill his eternal plans. This is how the powerful providence of God operates and orders all things. We must let our minds rise to these truths, even in the presence of Of great dangerous wicked Kings even in the present hour and remember that modern Kings governors presidents are no different than they were in the days of the Old Testament think of some modern examples if you search the web for the most powerful world leaders today who do you come up with you may you may see names like Xi Jinping of China right his name strikes fear in the hearts of many or Vladimir Putin of Russia, or some, some would even look and find Joe Biden of the USA, or Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Which rulers today give you personal concern? Think about it for a moment. What do you imagine happening 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road? Does the power, the wickedness, and danger of any particular leader tempt, today tempt you to feel anxious about your future? about your personal well-being and the well-being of your children or your grandchildren? you think about those things? And does it concern you? Do we think as we ought to when we consider the modern day conflicts, for example, between Israel and Hamas? We must remember these truths. Rest in these truths. Rejoice in the truth that Christ rules over all of this And He is accomplishing His perfect purposes through all of it. you believe that? We must learn to believe that. Are the rulers of today any different from the powerful, wicked, and dangerous rulers of the Old Testament? Absolutely not. In fact, even the great world ruler yet to come, the final and greatest earthly ruler that the world has ever known, will ever know, that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's called there, what? The man of lawlessness. He too will be crushed by Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. How about that? Listen to the Word of God and believe it today. Listen to this Word of God and believe it when your security feels shaken, when you watch the news, when you talk to your friends and neighbors about these things. Lift your eyes to the King who rules over all and whose every decree and plan comes to pass for the sake of Christ and His steadfast love. 1 Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. Psalm 33, 10-11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Psalm 46. The Lord is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore what? We will not fear. Though the earth be moved. Though the waters or the mountains move into the heart of the sea. Though their swelling, roar, and foam. And how does it say at the end? Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted on the earth. I will be exalted among the heathen. Isn't that? God's word to us? Psalm one thirteen four through six six the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Our God is in the heavens, Psalm one fifteen three. Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Psalm one thirty five, six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and the seas, and all the deeps. Consider Psalm 2.
1: Would you turn there with me? Psalm 2. I am giving you
0: here lists of verses that you can jot down and remember when your heart trembles in the presence of a Dominant, depraved, and dangerous ruler. Turn to these verses Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's God's response to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He gets in their face and he just laughs. That's what these words are. He, the Lord holds them in derision. It's a very interesting picture in the Hebrew. The Lord holding them in derision is God drawing their face near and just like mumbling in their face. Like, na 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 nah. That's what it is. He, he thinks this is ridiculous in light of who He is. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for Me, I have set My King On Zion, my holy hill. Who's that? Jesus Christ. God the Father has already a king, and he will reign forever and ever. Kings come and go, castles come and go, empires change and come and go, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, he is forever and he rules over all. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, verse 7 You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage. God is going to give to Jesus all the nations as His empire. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, what should be our response to that? What should the kings of the earth's response to that be? Be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the most important, the ultimate question is not, what kind of king rules over our earthly nation? But to what king do you give your ultimate allegiance? That's the real question. And if you give your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are safe in Him. Look at Psalm 2. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Show Him homage. Bow before Him as Savior and Lord. Turn from other gods. Turn from other ways of salvation. Turn from sin. And follow Christ the Lord as King. He who lived and died and rose again and is ascended and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the Gospel right there at the end of psalm 2. he will rule over and save all who take refuge in him did you know that the apostle peter applies these kinds of truths not only to dangerous rulers but also to depraved employers and disobedient husbands bring it down to the authority of a closer level god's power and providence are just as much at work in your government as they were, are at work at your workplace as they are in your home. Peter brings it very near. Christ rules perfectly and powerfully over all these realms. Are you willing to hope in Him against hope and fear not as He encourages us in 1 Peter chapter 3, 5 and 6? Are you willing even in suffering to keep on entrusting your soul to a faithful Creator as Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 4.19? Are you prepared to keep setting your heart on the promise of 1 Peter 5.10-11? After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what? Look at Acts chapter 4. We are almost done. Acts chapter 4. I want you to remember the response of the early church to horrible rulers like this as they suffered.
1: Take this to heart, dear friends. You remember the story in Acts chapter 4 where
0: Peter and John were beaten for the sake of Christ, for preaching the Gospel in the name of Christ. And verse 23 picks up, after they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, what? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Where did we just read that? That was Psalm 2, wasn't it? The very same.
1: For this, for truly
0: in this city, in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. Aha! you read that? They were there to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of the Lord, of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Will we remember this text when we really need to? In the days ahead, when we are threatened, maybe when church leaders are handled as Peter and John were, and they all we all come together. Will we pray like this? Will we remember who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And will we ask for relief or will we ask for boldness? Have you two noticed what they asked for? God, please lift this off of us. And that's not what they prayed. God, please give us boldness that we can preach the gospel. See that this is our response when we know who is truly King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This world is such a short dwelling place and and they're lifting their eyes to the eternal and to the eternal King and His eternal plans. God will work everything toward the fulfillment of His eternal redemptive plans in Christ. Remember to keep that big picture, that eternal picture in your heart and cling to the promises of God. So are you in Christ today? That question makes all the difference. And being in Christ, are you full of understanding of who He is? Are you resting in Him and mindfully taking refuge in Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords? May we truly honor Him by our trust and our loyalty even in the presence of a dangerous ruler. And may we, like these believers in Acts, continually go before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Not one, not even a ruler like Ahasuerus can thwart God's eternal plans for Christ, for His chosen
1: people. And the continuing story of, F, of Esther will make that plain. Notice. There's many pompous words from history. I'll
0: close with this. From Xerxes.
1: By the grace
0: of ahur Mazda, these are the countries of which I was king apart from Persia. I had lordship over them. They bore me tribute. What was said to them by me that they, that they did. My law that held them. And he lists all these places. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all kinds of people with all kinds of origins, king of this great earth great and wide, the son of King Darius, the Achaemenid. King Xerxes says, my King Darius, my father, by the grace of Ahurmazda Ahirmaz, built much that was good and he gave orders to dig this niche out because, but because he did not make an inscription, I ordered this description to, inscription to be made. He's just exalting himself and exalting himself and exalting himself. These are found on different tablets and archaeological finds. That was once his empire. But now look. There's the uh, Google Maps video or picture of the ruins of Susa. Where where is he now? Where's his castle now? The citadel of Susa where he had this 180-day feast. There it is. Or his other castle, the ruins of
1: Persepolis. There it is. That's what's left. Think about it. And there's his tomb. The tomb of Xerxes. These kings come and go, don't they? And all that they build comes and goes.
0: But Christ reigns forever. Our first slide here is also a picture of the ruins of Persepolis. See the glory of God as he providentially works redemptive rehearsal at the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and learn to trust him
1: wholeheartedly. Would you stand with me and let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to You in prayer as we close today.
0: And we do see the nations raging and peoples plotting in vain and certainly the kings of the earth set themselves against Your anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we thank You that You are so great and Your Son is so great that You laugh
1: at such words may we take your response to our own hearts when
0: we hear the blasphemy when we hear the threats may we remember who you
1: are and even laugh with joy in your eternal reign you have set your king over all and we believe him we trust on him
0: we submit to him our allegiance is his father i pray that if there's any here in this room that cannot confess that wholeheartedly with me today right now that they would today come to bow their knee in repentance and faith before the king of kings and lord
1: of lords who lived and died and rose and ascended a great Savior and King.
0: Thank You, Father, that You have promised the nations of the world as a gift to Your Son and that You will receive glory from them through
1: Him. May we each be wise and be warned. May we kiss with homage,
0: with allegiance, with faith, with love, with obedience. And as we rest and rejoice in Him, know that He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Father, fill our hearts with a sense of Your your sovereignty, Your might, Your greatness, even at the very moment when we feel tempted to fear in the presence of earthly events, that are being orchestrated by great and dangerous rulers. Bring these things to our remembrance, and may we trust
1: and delight in you, we pray, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.